Welcome to another life-changing episode of Skidmark Show. If this episode doesn't automatically make you better looking and richer than you were yesterday, we will give you our next episode absolutely free. In fact, we'll give you all of our episodes for free because we're that good. Powered by Pennzoil. Hey, this is Jesse James, the freaking jackal, and the full throttle flu, and you got right smack dab on top of the Skidmark Show. Crank it up. Yeah. Hey, this is Time Out from The Last Dragon. You listen to Skidmark Show. Hey, kids, this is CJ Ramon of the world-famous Ramones, and you're listening to the Skidmark Show. Adley doodly there, Nave Reno's, and welcome to episode 97 of Skidmark Show. I am Ethan D., and we are working our way up to that magic number, episode 100, which, in the world of podcasting, actually doesn't mean a whole lot of anything though but to us it means the world because it means you guys have all stuck around with us for 100 episodes of Skidmark show and we want to do another 100 how about that you want to go to 200 with us cool i'm down with it on this episode we'll check in with jeff here in just a little bit he and meg went up to the barrett jackson auction at mohegan sun up in connecticut and he'll be giving you the collector car market report so if you are in the market for purchasing a collector car of your own going to an auction getting in the biz or just wondering what's hot and what's not he's got the up and down for you but first a stuntman out from the west coast of america the man is known as robert rice the master of mayhem and i dig into his brain just a little bit to find out what makes somebody crazy enough to do what he does and that's right now on skidmark show it's skidmark show and on the phone with me is robert rice aka the master of mayhem now first of all robert um it's rare that somebody gets their own nickname so was that something you were given or is that something you came up with after you actually destroyed a bunch of stuff tell us um, they just started calling me that after destroying a bunch of stuff. <laughs> I was reading down your bio here and your sponsor sheet. You, uh, you have a pretty extensive resume when it comes to crashing cars and making messes, and you're more than just a stuntman. Why don't you tell us everything that you do in your amazing career now? Um, started actually about 15 years old um, racing at Ascot. And then from there, went to Saugus uh, Speedway and El Cajon with Modifieds and followed the monster trucks doing uh, the trailer races, derbies, and autocross with the monster trucks. Uh, they no longer do that. They uh, do their own own stuff. Um, then uh, Irwindale came along and we started doing auto soccer, skid plate cars, uh, enduro cars, demolition derbies and trailer races and demo demo cross figure eights with the small cars and big cars and also doing uh starting now we just did a figure eight motorhome race okay the figure eight thing is um i i think everybody out there any guy who's ever driven a car at some point in their life they've said i would love to be in a demolition derby because you just you want to break stuff sometimes the figure eight racing, though, that's the one thing that I think would probably make everybody pucker up just a little bit. Is that the scariest thing that you do? Uh, pretty much. I mean, you're you're actually challenging more than once going through the intersection because you go both directions through there. So it's double double the cross. Yeah, and you're, you're about to go damn near T-bone or head on with some of these guys. How fast are you going on those figure eights? Um, with the big cars, we used to probably do probably 50, 60 with the little cars. We probably do anywhere from 35 to, to 50, 
That's really fast when you're talking about just about to go through an intersection with cars coming at you on the side. That sounds like crazy. Yeah, it, uh, you definitely have to time it, uh, especially when you're in the lead pack, when you're coming up with slower traffic. You don't know what they're going to do. You try to see if they're lowering the front end on the brakes brake side um, to, to clear them, or if there's multiple of them, yeah, sometimes you have to stop or sometimes you just go for it. Now, you've also done a lot of stunts out there. Um, I think last year you had a, a jump that didn't go as planned, and you tried to redo that and uh, get your, your cred back this year on the, your July 4th celebration. What what jump was that? Uh, we actually did the uh, motorhome jump with that one and uh, didn't quite make it. Um, we're doing Crown Vicks using them. We just did a double jump where it was a competition with one car going one direction and me going another direction where we jumped through the motorhomes. And then uh, he has to jump through my motorhome and I have to jump through his motorhome. We go around a barricade doing a turn and uh, jump back through. So it's a double jump. So you're both going in opposite directions and you're jumping through each other's motorhomes all at the same time? Um, no, we're jump. He, he actually has to go down and make a turn and come back to my ramp. And I have to go down and make a turn and come back to his ramp. Gotcha. Now, you said you uh, got involved in this at the age of 15, which, again, I think every teenage boy's dream is somebody to go, hey, do you want to go out and wreck some cars for fun and possibly get paid for it? How did you get your start back then? Uh, both of my parents, uh, actually, my dad derbied. My mom just raced bombers and street stocks. And then uh, from there, my sister's boyfriend's um, we built cars together and my dad owned a body shop. So we just worked on cars there all the time. So even your dad and mom were into racing and, and sisters, boyfriends and all. So it was a whole family affair, huh? Yep. And still is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Do you have kids that are into it too? Yeah. My son actually drives, uh, my girlfriend drives too. So I was noticing that now, Cheryl, the girlfriend there. Yes. Because uh, you're the master of mayhem, and she's the queen of destruction. And on your sheet here, you've got uh, number seven. But Cheryl's got number 176 and number three. Does she drive more cars than you? Uh, no, she just runs the 176. That's her dad's old uh, race car number. And then in the small cars, because the scoreboard only uh, count, counts for two two numbers. So she kept the three, like, Dale on her number. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So what is... A typical weekend for you because you're I guess most of your work other than you know working on cars and stuff throughout the week your life is lived on the weekend out there at the speedways and stuff how, how does a typical weekend work for you um, it starts actually during a week I, I have a regular day job I work for Shelby uh, Enterprise Carol Shelby yes oh awesome I've actually been there 18 years. That's got to be the greatest uh, backup job anybody could ever have to go off and do demo derby on the weekends, huh? Yeah, exactly. So you've got they some have... of that Carroll Shelby knowledge in you to make your cars go faster than everybody else's, huh? Uh, a little bit. It's a little bit different with the four-cylinder stuff. We're, we're just now starting that here within like, the last four years. So it's a little bit different than the V8 cars. Well, yeah, I would bet uh, there's only so much you can coax out of a four banger than you know compared to the v8s but you got to do what you got to do how much is um tweaking those engines and speed really a factor when you're talking about figure eight racing and uh demolition derbies is it more about technique um just 
pretty much preparing everything and knowing what, what can go wrong that will go wrong if you don't do it right. Uh, we move the batteries inside the location and inside the cockpit of the car instead of the outside. We definitely do a perimeter bars around you to keep you safe inside the car. And uh, little things here or there, like the starters and the uh, radiators, stuff like that to protect them. So like in the demo derbies, uh, I think most people would know that you usually want to hit somebody with the rear end of your car, obviously, to protect the engine and stuff. But you're moving radiators. You've got roll cages in there. You're putting batteries in protective cases. What does a building a demolition derby car, how much do you have to change that people usually don't know about? Um, a lot of the cars, the older cars, you didn't have to worry about too much uh, electronics. You can run just one hot wire to the distributor. Um, the alternator you can run or without, I put a good battery in it so we don't run the alternator. Um, so you only run basically one fan belt to the water pump and one to the power steering. And moving the battery inside, that way if you do have a problem, electrical problem, you can hopefully know how to fix it in the inside if something comes loose or something like that. So uh, ground is real popular on the, on the motor to keep good. Um, ground in the the motor to the frame and stuff like that. Are you uh, one of the most popular guys at the junkyard these days when you go and buy up half their stock to go wreck some more? I'm actually sponsored by one of the best wrecking yards in the world, LKQ and Pick Your Part. <laughs> nice. So that's got to make it a little easier, but when you get out there to uh, a wrecking yard and you've got all these cars, how do you pick a good demolition derby car? Uh, full size, anything with a full size frame. Um, a lot of them cars are starting to disappear, so a lot of people are using the Crown Vicks now for the big stuff. And Irwindale, actually, most of their derbies now are small cars. I was going to say, you know, most of the modern cars and stuff, they're plastic out, you know, outside of the frame. You don't have the, the steel bodies anymore, so, and those are getting less and less and harder to find. What can you find these days? Are there still some good old steel cars? Because I figure like an old town and country woody-sided station wagon like I used to ride around in as a kid would be a perfect demolition derby car, but there's not many of those in the yards left, are there? No, I probably went through between Ascot because I was at, doing derbies at Ascot and Saugus. I probably used the Galaxy 500s and the country car wagons, probably over 200 vehicles. Holy cow. <laughs> He'll take them off the street. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to trailer racing. That's another one of those crazy things that I I want to know uh, whose idea it was to say, let's go around and basically do a demolition derby when you've got a jet ski on a trailer behind you. But you, you do that. You've got all kinds of different things on your trailer. You actually have a, a special trailer with jet skis. You're like one of the few guys that does that, right? Um, my son does the jet skis. I do bigger boats, just kind of make a bass and have a little bit of weight so you're not because they water down the track so you're not sliding around too much um i use probably a either a 10 to a 19 foot boat wow now is that on the figure eights or is that just going around a regular oval track they actually do oval and then they do like a kidney bean style road course that just sounds dangerous as hell. I mean, I figure if somebody hits your trailer just right, it'll, like, yank you around. I've been towing a trailer, a U-Haul full on the highway, and had the damn thing nearly whip me sideways because of trailer wobble. I mean, how is that when somebody's actually trying to turn you around? 
Um, it basically, they get if they get into the side hard enough, um, they're definitely going to take you around and you just ride it out and get going back the same direction you go and uh, do 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 the same to other people. So basically, your your job, your fun job on the weekend there, other than the Shelby job, is hope if you get hit, you can spin yourself back around, right? Yeah, without lodging the thing up over another another trailer. Um, they actually push stuff out on the track, like empty, uh, tow long, like, uh, campers and, and boats and, uh, little travel trailers to drive through. It's, it's basically not how many laps you can make. It's how many, how much mayhem you can make around the track. It almost sounds like a, a real human game of Frogger where they're throwing stuff out on the track and you're just trying to get your way around there, huh? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's obstacles here and there, but most of the obstacles you can drive through or drive over. <laughs> oh man, how does somebody go about getting into what you do? I mean, you've got the day job, but on the weekend, and and obviously it's got to be hard to make a full time living just doing demos and, and figure eights and trailer races. But you you can make some money and have some fun, right? Yeah, it uh, it's definitely you're, you're not gonna make a whole lot of money but at least uh, survive to make it for the next one um and have a, have a little spending money the enduros and the figure eights stuff that we do um just starting a race you're you're guaranteed at least 35 dollars to start the race and it only costs you just a pit pass to get in you're not entering the vehicles at all um night of destruction you could probably use the same car in four different events if it has the proper caging in it so you're at least guaranteed uh, at least 120 to 130 dollars, and it comes to 45 dollars to get in the pits. So while this may not be uh, Formula One level racing, this is a great place for somebody to go out and at least have some fun driving cars on the weekend. I guess anybody can get into it, huh? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Formula One, they're probably making a lot of money, but. If you crash one of them cars, you're a million dollars in a hole. <laughs> <laughs> and if you crash one of yours, you can go and get another one. In fact, crashing them is kind of the point, huh? Yeah, we can bang fenders out and change tires and change suspension when they have to build a whole new car. <laughs> yeah, I think you got them licked then. I mean, the $54 million that Lewis Hamilton makes would be nice, but uh, yours is definitely, I, I would say, more fun when you're driving, huh? Uh, I guarantee I'll probably have more fun. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk real quick about some of the stunts you've done. Uh, you've done some of those big jumps where you've jumped into a tower of cars. What's the, I guess, the craziest thing you ever did or one where maybe your girlfriend was like, no, that's too much, or the kids were going, please don't. What's the craziest thing you ever pulled off? Uh, craziest, craziest. The fire to the van. Um, we actually uh, did a wall of fire and drove one of the Hondas through a van. That was on fire. That was on fire. That was probably the the most craziest. You drove a Honda through a van that was on. How did it make it? How did a Honda make it through a van? Um, we actually uh, did a little bit of work to the van to compensate for the strength of it. Gotcha. Okay. See, I could do that. I mean, I could probably pull off a lot of stunts if I can go in and weaken it here and there. So at least I know I'm not just going to get knocked down on the ground, right? Yeah, or get stuck in it. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true too. I know that there are uh, some guys I'd seen before that when you do those jumps and you're flying into other cars, you have essentially like a rope tied to the passenger door that you lean over and you grab and you hold yourself down on the seat. Do you have anything like that or do you just trust in your roll cage and, and white knuckle it on the steering wheel? How is it flying through the air? 
pretty much just uh, relying on your cage that you do put in the car. Um, the rollover stuff, yes, you you wanted just a just basically a lap belt, so you can roll with it. Um, and definitely leaning over and grabbing a rope, or um, on the smaller cars, you can actually grab the door, the inner panel of the door. Gotcha. All right, Robert, the master of mayhem. Uh, tell everybody where we can see some videos of some of the stuff you've done. Do you have a, a website, Facebook, or YouTube channel? We have Facebook. You can go on Robert Rice Racing on Facebook and check it out. Also, uh, Low Budget TV shows uh, a lot of the Urbandale videos. They show them on there. But we do, I do download them on our website as well. Awesome. Well, we'll put up links to yours on some of ours. And uh, stay safe. And thanks for joining us on Skidmark Show. And you guys, hopefully, we'll see you on the internet or in person sometime soon at Irwindale Speedway. All right. Just let me know if you ever want to come out and drive a car. You know what? I will. The next time I make it to Southern California, which isn't very often because I'm in Florida. But the next time I'm in SoCal, I will call you and we'll go trash some stuff. All right. Call our, me before. We'll make sure you're there. Our next night of destruction is August 31st. So any of, if any of your fans on the podcast want to come out to Irwindale, let us know. Hook me up or check it out on Facebook, and I can hook them up with tickets. You got it. We will let them know. Thank you guys so much. You have a great night. All right. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Skidmark Show, and we send it out to Jeff Allen reporting from the Barrett-Jackson auction up in Mohegan Sun in Connecticut with the Collector Car Market Report. Skidmark Show, it's Jeff Allen here, and I'm going to give you my car market report, basically about the collector car market, because most of you guys that uh, email us, message me, are always wondering, what's the new trend? What should I invest in? What should I buy to drive and fix and flip? You know, the biggest thing is, guys, and if you stay true to this, you'll never lose, is buy what you love. That's it. It's a very simple statement. I've lived by it my whole life and it's worked for me and it'll work for you. But let's go over some of the trends that we see coming up. One of these is not new. It's been around for quite a long time. I do not get it. It's not something that I believe in or follow, but it is a phenomenon and it's a very successful one at that. And it's the first and last VIN number of vehicles. And uh, just a prime example of this was at Mohegan Sun to just pass a 2019 Chevrolet Corvette Z06, the last one that will ever be built, the last VIN number, sold for $2.7 million. Now, this was a charity vehicle, so you kind of got to skew that just a little bit. But if you watch the trends, anytime there's our first and last of any VIN number vehicle, it is going for a huge amount of money. And I just don't see the value. I mean, especially if you can have the second to last or the second produced for let's say like 80 to a hundred thousand. I don't know. I think that's a better investment if you're looking at it from my point of view. Plus I like to drive my cars. So having a $2.7 million last owned Z06 sitting in the garage, not a good investment for me, but Hey, hats off to whoever, helped a charitable cause by donating $2.7 million for that car and keeping that market strong. Also, at that same auction, a 2019 Chevrolet Corvette Yanko Stage 2 Convertible, serial number one, again, sold for $258,500. So you can see, again, that serial number one stuff. I get it. It's kind of cool to say you have the first one that came off the assembly line, but I don't know that I see the value is there. Another thing we're seeing in the market is 
still to this day, which is amazing because you know how trends come and go and you see things rise and fall. And, and uh, you know, 69 Camaros used to just be the most sought after car at one point in time. But the resto mod market or the pro touring market, uh, I kind of combine those a little bit because, you know, there's a lot of gray area, whether your car's a pro touring car or a resto mod, it kind of all meshes together in, in my mind. But the oddities that are out there, the crazy cars that are being built are still commanding big, big money. And that's cool to see in this industry because that tells you that everybody's wanting something one-off or unique to drive. And to me, that's very cool. Very cool and fits really well with my flat 12 philosophy. But also, we wanted to, I wanted to bring this car up because this was quite interesting. 1967 Mustang Eleanor Tribute Edition, all right? Everybody remembers when the reboot of Gone in 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage and the famous uh, Pepper Gray Eleanor 67 Mustang appeared on the screen. Well, guys, look how long that's been going on. And here is a Tribute Edition that just sold for $187,000. $187,000. I don't know if these cars are ever going to cool down. I mean, I know Nicolas Cage wished his career didn't cool down as much as these cars are still holding their value. It's amazing that you can have at this day and age, a Eleanor Tribute Edition still do $187,000. That tells you the power of the movie industry right there. Because would that car has been as popular and sold for as much money for so long if it wasn't for that movie? I don't think so. Another interesting thing, which I'm very excited to see that they're getting a lot of respect nowadays, is the JDM market. This 1997 black Toyota Supra Anniversary Edition sold for $176,000. Yes, $176,000. So I guess in that scene in the first Fast and Furious, when the bald guy's sitting there in the 355 Spider. And he looks over at him and says, you can't afford my ride. Well, I guess things have flipped around because what would that 1995 355 Spider be worth nowadays? Maybe 60, 70,000, maybe 80 if it's pristine and low miles. This 97 Supra just brought $176,000. That's pretty cool. And I think it's very respectful to say that the JDR market is super, super strong right now. And we're seeing a lot of things that are going across the block that are unique. And I think people want to drive stuff that they have a conversation about. A few years back, I sold a rat rod to a guy. And this guy was used to spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to build these radical 57 Chevys and 32 Fords. And, and he was building some really killer, you know, cars that could go out there and win the Riddler Award. And yet, he would drive those cars to car shows and he wasn't getting noticed. So he came and bought from me, I think it was like a $15,000 rat rod, so he could cruise to one of the cars and coffee and get noticed. And I think that's a big trend nowadays is we're kind of getting away from those matching number cars. I mean, yes, they are going to command uh, a high price and there's going to be those diehard collectors that love them and cherish them. And those cars don't get as much road, you know, time on the road as I believe they should anymore because of their values and the collectability of them. And they're kind of stowed away. But I think from a collector standpoint, there's only so many people out there that want to say, I've got a 1970 Hemi Cuda. I've got this super rare one of one, you know, RT charger, or I've got this numbers matching NCRS 67 Corvette 427 435 horse car sitting in my collection. I think nowadays there's cars that they want to be 
does people stop and question and say, what is that? What is going on there? And it's, it's huge. I mean, you, you look at the power plants we have at our disposal nowadays, you know, LS3 is making 550 horsepower crate motors and you've got LS7s and then the Coyotes and the superchargers and the turbochargers. We live in a world of technology and it's one of the best times to be alive if you're in the automotive industry or you're into cars because there is horsepower everywhere. It's all up there for you to just grab and uh, soak it all in. So for me, I think it's cool to see the trend sticking with the unique and the oddities are bringing good money, but also the JDM collectibles are starting to come up there and they're starting to really surpass some of our European counterparts. So it's kind of interesting to see that trend kind of change because air-cooled Porsches went nuts, completely nuts. I mean, there was a time I could buy those cars. Well, I mean, for example, I bought a 1979 Targa, probably had a buck fifty on it. Doesn't matter. Black car, black interior, and uh, that car was traded in a dealership in San Diego County. And I bought the car for forty five hundred bucks. Now you look at that, and you fast forward to today, and you go, "What's that car worth?" Well, I don't think that car is really a fifty thousand dollar car at this point. I mean, there's so many other cars out there that you could drive, and that are more more driver friendly. I mean, think about it. If you can spend fifty to sixty thousand dollars to drive a classic car you'd probably enjoy that money spent on a more modern car with a more modern power plant, more reliable, more driver friendly, more horsepower, definitely. So I think those cars have their place in history. And I think those super rare cars will always command big money. But I think that market's about to change. And I think the run of the mill air-cooled Porsches, we're seeing a drop already. People are asking big money for them, but they're not commanding it and they're not selling for that. And there's only a limited amount of time before somebody hangs onto a car to the point where they're like, you know what, it's time to get rid of it. Another interesting fact is the 69 Ford Broncos. Now, you know, Ford announced they're bringing out a new Bronco. So that's going to create interest again in the originals. But this car did $203,500. Incredible, incredible amounts of money there. And then, you know, of course, we have the 2014 Ferrari California Spider that did one hundred and seventy. dollars thousand dollars here at the Mohegan Sun. So don't get me wrong. There's still a lot to choose from out there in the market. I mean, they had a total of 545 vehicles sell for $21.8 million with a 100% sell-through rate because they go no reserve, of course. And they also were able to bring in $2.8 million uh, which was raised in the uh, sale of three charity vehicles. And we all know that 2.7 of that was because of the Chevrolet's last Z06. So don't know that I quite agree with that, but hey, good for you if you've got 2.7 to, to donate to charity because that's that's really cool that you were able to do that. Some of the other things, you know, like um, that are changing in the marketplace. And I got to tell you guys something that's it's just really odd to me. Uh, I wouldn't normally buy a car like this, but I'm trying to wrap my head around it. But we recently sourced some vehicles for an upcoming 80s drama, cop drama, that's going to happen. Uh, it's going to air here in the next couple months. And then I can tell you more about it. But I was tasked with the job to secure some undercover detective cars. And everybody knows back in the 80s, what were they driving? Well, depending on the area, they were either Ford LTDs or they were uh, Chevy Caprice, the old box. And so I got to tell you something, when 
you look at trends and you look at things that are happening and you can't tell me that the bar is moving when you're looking at buying a 1983 Caprice Classic and that car ranges from seven to $10,000. My goodness, I never grew up thinking that I would pay anywhere near that for a four-door car of any type. But that just shows you how the industry's changing and what's hot. And literally after wrapping that show and having the transporter bring back the vehicle to me, he said, hey, I was a little worried staying in the hotel because everybody was staring at that 83 Caprice on the trailer. And I said, man, they're hot. And I don't get it. It's not my, it's not my deal. But uh, for folks out there, it's kind of interesting. So Anyway, keep your eyes on the 80s cars. They're coming up hot and heavy. You know, the Grand National kind of is the flagship of that whole ritual. And then it's followed shortly behind all the Fox Body fans, which, you know, I'm a Fox Body fan too. And uh, of course, the IROC Z, which was one of my first sports cars. I mean, who didn't want a 305 cubic inch tune port injected motor that was completely gutless? But you look cool going down the road. And that was me. It was all about looking good. Uh, And back in then the day, I thought it was pretty fast. But uh, it's not fast by any comparison from today's cars. Anyway, guys, that's it. That's the Collector Car Market Report from Jeff Allen signing off for Skidmark Show. I hope you enjoyed episode 97 on the road to 100. We'll catch you later. Take care. Thanks for listening to Skidmark Show. We'll have another episode full of fast cars and rock stars ready for you soon. Until then, be sure to share this episode with your friends on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and all social media. And leave us a five-star review everywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, listen loud and drive fast when nobody's looking. Powered by Pinsoil. Pinsoil.